Welcome to Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barber de Graff. I teach astronomy and physics at Western Washington University. This episode is a little different from any of the shows we've made before because, well, it's a road trip. It involves scenic ferry rides and traveling up the coast of Vancouver Island in British Columbia. We conducted research on the beaches of Quadra Island with my colleague, Dr. Marco Hatch. He's an assistant professor at WW and a marine ecologist. Marco studies clam gardens. I'd actually never heard of clam gardens before I met him, even though clams are one of my favorite foods, and I love digging for clams on cold, rocky beaches in the Pacific Northwest. So you can imagine how excited I was when Marco invited me to tag along with him and his research team. But let's start from the beginning. What are clam gardens? I'll let Marco answer that question. My name is Marco Hatch. I'm an assistant professor in environmental science at the Huxley College of Environment at Western Washington University. And we're here today to study clam gardens. Clam gardens are special spots in the intertidal where for thousands of years, up and down the coast from Washington to Southeast Alaska, indigenous people have modified the environment, have modified the intertidal and nearshore environment for the purpose of growing more clams. So many of these uh, clam gardens exist on what were formerly steep beaches, and you can roll rocks to the low tide line and take that steep beach and flatten it out. And that creates more clam habitat, and these flat beaches are right in what we call the Goldilocks zone for clams. If the clams live too high in the tide line, they dry out and die. If they live too low, the sea stars eat them. So for thousands of years, people have modified the environment to open up more space for clams in the ideal habitat, in the ideal zone that these clams like to live. Uh, there's been identified clam gardens in the southern Gulf Islands, just across from the Washington-Canada uh, border. And there's ethnographic evidence of clam gardens in Washington state. They extend all the way through southeast Alaska. And so these are really numerous. We have no idea how many there are. There's likely thousands and thousands of these features up and down the coast, often in really high densities. So here on Quadra, um, within just one small bay, there's probably 20 plus clam gardens. So it's a really intensely managed ecosystem with a lot of effort put into figuring out how to grow the most number of clams in a small area. One of the amazing things about the technology used in clam gardens is they don't only produce clams of one variety, but create a system that supports different types of clams with very specific needs. So clam gardens offer this really interesting opportunity to look at sea level rise because of what I mentioned, that they're built in a really narrow part of the intertidal, that they're really, really specific down to just a few centimeters of where they're placed. So we can look at and date these rock wall features um, and understand that when that rock wall was built, it was built at the proper clam habitat, it was built at that, that sea level. And now, depending on where you are, you'll see clam gardens that are way too deep for clams now, and you'll see some that are way up high on the shore. And that gives us an idea of how sea levels changed in that local environment. Some areas, sea level has risen quite a lot over the past five or 6,000 years, and in other areas, sea levels actually dropped over five or 6,000 years. So clam gardens follow that tideline up or down depending on what's happening locally. So every, every clam has its own unique habitat, a certain kind of flow, a certain kind of temperature, or a certain kind of sediment. 
Um, and so there's a lot of engineering that goes into, and a lot of ecological knowledge that goes into trying to propagate or, or create good habitats for these areas. And one thing you notice right away when you walk around on clam garden versus a non-clam garden is that clam garden sediments, the actual um, sand within the beach, tends to be a quite a lot different than what you see in other areas. Clam gardens tend to have a lot more shell. Shell hash will be white, kind of flaky. Um, and it turns out that clams really, really like that sort of sediment. That that white calcium carbonate shells and barnacles um, let water flow through more easily and clams just really, really like that area compared to maybe like a mud beach or um, kind of a muckier beach. Uh, so that's a big part of it, as is turning the sediments over to help um, wash away some of the fine grain organic matter um, and keep the sediment healthy. So, and the other big thing is water flow. So clams eat phytoplankton. So they need lots of water swishing back and forth, providing them food every day. And so you could think of it like hamburgers on a conveyor belt, right? So some areas the conveyor belt's real slow, and other areas that current's real fast, and it's just force feeding them hamburgers, hamburgers, hamburgers. In this case, phytoplankton. So when you start to look at where these clam gardens are placed, um, and look at the currents, and look at the habitat, you find out that these are always the ideal spot for clams, that it's more than just, well, here's a beach, let's make a clam garden. It's thinking about what are the currents like, what is the wave energy like, what does the water quality look like, um, and what tide height, where do we build this wall to within centimeters to be the perfect spot for clams. And so there's actually tons and tons of different pieces that go into that. Standing on the shore, I could immediately see the clam garden and the rock wall. I had never taken part in field work before. Astrophysicists don't usually take samples. Before we could start extracting small portions of the beach, Marco helped me understand what I was looking at. That is a big clam. What kind of clam is that? That's a butter clam. That's a butter clam. That's a big butter clam. That's a big butter clam, yep. Whoa. So one, one way to figure out what kind of clams live on the beach is, is exactly what you just did, is look at the shells mm -hmm. on top of the beach. Um, and that's a good indication of what's below the sediment, right? Right, so you can see a lot of butter clams out here. Yeah, you see butter clams. Um, the more elongated one, those are the horse, the horse one? I don't know. Yeah, there's, horse clams are quite large. That's a soft shell. That's a soft shell. That's okay. a cockle. That's a butter clam. Okay. And it's a little neck, which is what you had for dinner. Yes, that's what we had the other night. Um, so, we, so right there, without doing any digging, you know, there's at least four species. Clam gardens serve more than one purpose, and they tell us the history of people engineering the land. We talked about clam gardens being at the Goldilocks zone for clams. Yeah. And this is now too high for clams. This whole beach right. behind us is no longer clam habitat. It's too high. And what happened in Quadra is, unlike some areas, in Quadra, sea level has been falling. During the last glaciation, when there was about a kilometer and a half of ice just over this whole area, um, that pushed the land down. So it depressed the land, it pushed it down. When that ice melted, two things happened. One, all that weight's lifted off the land, and two, those glaciers melted, and the water went into the sea. So the glaciers melting, putting water in the sea, is raising the bathtub up, right? It's right. raising the sea level. But at that same time, Quadra from, had been depressed for quite a while. The ice went away, and now it starts to bounce back. Mm -hmm. And it turns out Quadra bounced back faster than that sea level rise. You can, you can see, see that there's this like, yeah, there's like this nice flat spot right here. Yeah. And it extends out to another rock wall that's, that's recent, that's new. 
Um, what do you mean by new? <laughs> it's, it's about uh, probably about 1,200 years, uh, about 1,200 years old. Okay. And so there's this second rock wall that extends around. Yeah, and you can see the dipping right here. You can see the dipping. You can see the um, the fucus, the rockweed okay. that's growing along the rocks. That's a good indication that there's rocks here instead of sand. And so this is forming a second rock wall, lower rock wall, rock wall that's quite a lot newer. So you can see these multiple walls as an adaptation to local sea level change. In this case, uh, sea level uh, dropping. And in certain areas where sea level's been rising, uh, you'll find features that are way underwater now. Okay. So you, you can see them like on your bottom uh, sounder and your sonar, um, where there's these rock walls that are now a few meters below water. So we're looking at clams here, which is an important part of the food system. I also had another student look at the rock wall back here because um, we think of clam gardens as clams, right? And that's in the name, clam garden. Yeah. Um, and I often said I spent years with my head in the sand just looking for clams. And often when we come out, we're just in such a rush. Like we don't mm -hmm. stop and look around and like kind of take it all in and think about what it means. It's hit the beach, put some sediment in a baggie, like get some clams, throw them in a bag get on the boat, zip to the next one. But like, it's pretty rare to like be able to like stop and like really think about like this clam garden versus the ones we're gonna see over there and all the ones around the bay. The fact that this bay had between seven and eight winter villages, right? Right, yeah, This we is a massively populated area um, where the people would come together in the winter because it's a relatively protected cove. These sorts of resources become really important, right? Having known spots that you can go to and get uh, good amounts of clams are really vital and also this rock wall is full of a lot of other traditional foods mm. like, so like, uh, uh, snails limpets red rock crab maybe octopus um, red sea limpets? cucumber limpets are the little flat gastropods um, Aha. so that's a little limpet ah so what do you they, oh there is meat on it ah yeah so, like, so they're grazers so it's a mollusk um related to clams and snails okay you see his foot and he has a head there yeah. he's got two antennas that stick out should we put it back or? yeah we'll put it back when we're done okay. um, and it has a radula which is like a little scraper mm. it goes around and scrapes the algae off rocks okay and that's what it wants to eat mm -hmm. awesome. and so so this What's habitat yeah yeah okay. Uh, so this habitat, like all these big rocks, provides a three-dimensional habitat, right? So if you think about a plane like this, like a big flat plane, there's not that much surface area. Mm -hmm. But you start adding rocks that are piled on top of each other with holes in between, right. way more surface area, way more area for little guys to crawl around and graze, right? Because they also care. to hide. Exactly. Yeah, things exactly. to hide. Little hidey holes so they don't get eaten by things. Um, and there's also, crabs everywhere. there's crabs everywhere, and then also when it's hot and sunny out, uh, spots for them to hide out of the heat. Mm. I'm, I'm terrified of ocean creatures, but that's, <laughs> that's, another, that's another show. Um, so what you're telling me, so in the winter, we both grew up in, this, in the Northwest, but I remember clam digging um, when it was really cold and wet, because that was the time where you could eat the clams, right? Because you don't really want to eat them um, in the summer with the algae blooms. So you're talking about wintering Yep. Um, people coming here from various villages to stay here in the winter and just have an abundance of food. So these clam gardens are not only good for clams, but like everything else. Mm -hmm. Like it's just 
But you have to manage it, otherwise yes. it's not going to work yeah. out. It's not by accident. It's not by accident. Um, yeah. That required a lot of careful care, cooperation, right, to build this wall. You can't do it by yourself. Um, and a system of governance and management to figure out, you know, if, if, if you spend a whole bunch of time, if your family spends a bunch of time building this wall, like who gets access to it? There's mm. a governance structure associated with yeah. it. Um, and with all the villages that are coming in, yeah. like, yeah. Okay. All right, let's dig for glimpse. Let's dig some glimpse. <laughs> Um, so what we're trying to do here is get a good idea of what clams are living here. We're going to do this pretty methodically. We're just going to scrape a bit down and okay. then we just kind of remove and just keep going until we get to some clams. We'll set those aside. And the first part in the very upper surface is usually where you'll see your baby clams. And so once we get this kind of gravel out of the way, uh, keep eye out for real tiny clams. What is that? A worm. Okay. Just a normal worm. Just a worm. Uh, okay. Yes. You can use that for clam bakes and stuff. You mm -hmm. see like a baby clam, a crab in your clam. Oh, yeah. That happens a lot, right? Yeah. So, like what? How does it get in there? Like what's happening? So, so um, it's called a, a pea crab or a commensal crab. Okay. And the only place they live is in a clam shell. Really? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. That's like a certain crab. Okay. Yeah. Oh, here's another one. Nice. <gasps> <laughs> They're all the same kind, the ones that I'm finding. Seem this like the same kind. What's the white ones that we've been finding? This little. So these are, um, they're all sandy. You'll have to wash them off. These are juvenile uh, little neck clams. Okay. Like the ones we ate? Yep. And that's on the butter clam. On the little neck, you have the same rings, but you also have these cross hatching. Right. It's like a hashtag. Yeah, your, your undergrad student and I were talking about how this very much looks like hashtag little necks, right? Hashtag little necks, nice. Hashtag little necks, yeah. And little necks are interesting because they can look a whole variety of different ways. And so mm, okay. if, we, if we look at just the little necks. Yeah, the comparison of the little necks. Okay. Yeah, it's crazy, right? So huh. those look kind of the same, but then we start to get all these different color patterns here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like these are very yeah. leopardy yep. kind of, um, or like a lionfish. A lionfish. Yeah. That's what it kind of looks like. Lionfish yeah. clam. Lionfish little neck. Okay. These little ones are probably two years old. Um, oh, okay. They, I was not gonna expect that. Okay. Um, they have growth increments on them, and oh. so that was probably year one from here to here. Like, oh wow! And so like like trees, yep. like oh, rings of a tree. Yeah. So and that's actually one of the things that I've done um, is in trees. It's called dendrochronology. Dendro tree chronology time. Okay. In clams and other hard parts, it's called sclerochronology. Okay. Sclero like skeleton. Okay. And chronology like time. Cool. So you can cut these in half and measure both the annual growth increments, and they also have tidal or daily growth increments as well. Oh wow! Okay. So you can reconstruct the chronology uh, of the shell, and based on the chemistry in the shell, it'll tell you about ocean conditions, what the temperature was, what the salinity was. Um, and how much nitrogen was in the water. Mm -hmm. So we can actually use them as proxies to figure out what past ocean conditions look like as well. So a little neck like this might be sort of like one, two, three, like four to five years Oh, wow. Old. And then when we get to these, these are like six, yeah. seven. Yeah, they kind of max out around 10. Oh, then, okay. And then they're just like... They call it, in the clam literature, they call it senile. They become senile. Okay. 
Like the sea? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Okay. They call it sen senility. Coping yeah. with senility. It's my favorite uh, line from The Simpsons. Uh, so when they get to a certain age, they just grow really, really slow. Okay. Um, so okay. a butter clam can be 20, 25 years old. Um, okay, and then those lines get cl closer yep. and closer together. Yep. Oh. As a new field assistant, there were a few experimental methods I had to learn, like plotting a transect. This is a straight line along the beach where core samples were taken using various long tubes. I was slowly getting the hang of it. If you look at this sediment, this is that shell hash, really a lot of broken clams, a lot of broken barnacles. Um, this is kind of typical clam garden sediment. So if we go around the corner, there's a non-walled beach that's very, very mucky and muddy. Um, and so you couldn't just pull up a hand of sand and, or sediment that would look like this, right? Was, and so when we run this through the sieves, that's a quantitative way of measuring that, okay. right? And then we can also take that same sample and we can measure the amount of shell of calcium carbonate in a couple of different ways. One, you can heat it up a whole bunch and all the shell will burn off. Uh -huh. So you can weigh it, burn off all the shell, the calcium carbonate, and weigh it again. Okay. And that gives you a percent calcium carbonate at the beach. There's a traditional teaching that after you eat clams, you return them to the beach, that you take the shells and you dump them back on the beach. And so um, that's one of the thoughts around looking at the beach like this is that over time, people are dumping all their clams back at the beach, which helps fill in the beach, but also helps give a lot of this kind of shell hash right. type sediment. So it's, I mean, I, I liked when you were talking about earlier about like these clam gardens are very similar to the gardens in, in like the back mm -hmm. of your, uh, yeah. you know, in your backyard and how you're, you're kind of making sure you manage them constantly. But you, I mean, I'm thinking about like this idea of like fertilizer and you're like making mm -hmm. more nutritious like soil, right? So yeah. you're like putting the shells back in because so that you can make sure that the, the sediment is good for the clams, right? Instead of that muckiness. Yep. yep. So we do uh, two transects per beach, three, three samples per transect, so six samples per beach. Okay. And we have 10 beaches, so 60 per trip. We did 60 samples in July and 60 in May. How long does it take? Up to four milliliters, right? Five. Five. Yeah. Come on, Gina, you can do this. This is the most field work I've ever done. Because <laughs> when you study, you know, galaxies, you don't really go out. You don't, you don't go quorum? No, you don't quorum. <laughs> Ask them how they're doing. Yeah, you don't. <laughs> Look for critters. You don't do any analysis on algae. TO2. It's seriously, it stopped. Like, okay, let's keep on going. Is that about good? Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yeah. That's good. Okay, I'm ready. She's labeling. A lot of what we do is write with Sharpies on things probably half of our we're really finding out what the clams are eating and yeah. we're like coring for the environment like the sediment and so what we're doing right now is we're taking a very small sediment core okay. uh, which is just a modified syringe um, to take a, a small plug of the sediment and what we're looking for is on top of the sediment there could be little phytoplankton that live here called benthic diatoms that are clam food so we want to see how much uh, of the benthic diatoms are contributing to the diet of the clams. What do the benthic diatoms look like, like under a microscope? Uh, diatoms have a glass house, so they have a silica shell, so they're often like really, really pretty. They're oh. typically kind of round, they'll have like little impressions in them, um, but you can do SEM imagery of them and they're really, they're really pretty. So you'll 
take the glass vial. The okay. sa sample will go into that. All right, and I'll just be um, ready to take the sample, yeah. right? All right. We're gonna core this. Let me label it really quick. Oh uh, yes, that's important. It's always good to label your your like your samples. I've heard that. And there's all these little baby crabs, like they want to be involved. Oh yeah. Yeah, they're like all over this one. Sweet. And then you cap Close that. Up. I just did some science. Oh great. So you want to core one? Yeah, sure. Let's do okay. it. Don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. I'm not going to touch that area. <laughs> but I can move this. No, he's okay. that, he's part of the beach. What do I want to do then? I touched him, but that's okay, right? No, yeah. that's not okay. Should I go here? Sure. <laughs> Let's go here. Okay, and I go all the way down to the top. Yep. So about here. About there, yeah. And then so normally kind of dig some of this out with your hand. So I can touch that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Everything in the can is what we want. Everything in the can don't dig. touch. Okay, dig and that then and you then you slide of, that under, okay. yeah. I'm gonna try to make it as flat as possible around here. There you here. go. Yep, that's the move. Okay. That's the move. <laughs> yeah. People go to college for this. <laughs> I didn't. Ugh. I'm like really thorough here. There we go. Okay. And then I go like that. Yeah, so flip it upside down. Just then all the sediment stays in the can. All right. And then I put it around that. Yeah. Oh, okay, and then I flip. Yeah, and hang on to the whirl pack. I'm like worried I'm gonna ruin your science here. <laughs> it's like, oh. All right, cool. We learn from our mistakes. Oh my God, <laughs> I am not good at this. Okay, oh, okay. There we go. That looks like way more than you want. Like way more. That's You're okay. making more work for the students, Regina. I am, I am. How long does it take to, to do a few digs on one on beach? When you like core, mm -hmm. you do this. Yep. Like what's what's an average day? Um, <laughs> uh, an average day for this trip, our low tide started off at say 7:30 a.m. Mm -hmm. um, we want to be on station, ready to work two hours before that. So we want to be here with all of our stuff ready to go by 5:30 a.m., which is about when the sun comes out. So, so you've been really nice to us today. Yeah. So we leave camp. Uh, this is an eight-day trip, and we've been camping. So we'll leave camp at 4.30 in the morning, okay. in the dark with our headlamps on, drive to the dock, get in the boat, come out here, uh, unload everybody, and then just about 5.30, our first transect will be exposed as the tide's receding. Right. And we get straight on that, lay out our transect tape, start sampling like mad, try to finish that transect before the second one's exposed, go and sample that one, collect all of our data, get our clams, our sediment cores, um, any other measurements we need, load up everybody in the boat, go to our second beach. And we try to get to that second beach before low tide. Okay. So we have two hours to work before low tide and two hours to work after low tide okay. before our sites are underwater. Okay. Once our sites are underwater, uh, then and only then we take lunch breaks. Right. We took those early today. <laughs> Not until two hours after low. <laughs> Sorry. Then we take a lunch break. Um, and then we go, our next operation is to go out and sample the phytoplankton populations in the water. Right. So we actually filter the water through a small filter that collects all the phytoplankton. And then we can measure the fatty acids within that, in that filter. And we can also measure the chlorophyll. Yeah. And then we'll come back when there's about three to four feet of water right on top of us now. Okay. And then we do the same thing here. We sample the water right above our transects. 
So okay. we, we work from before low tide through low tide all the way to the next high tide. Right. And so in those days, if we leave camp at 4.30, we'll get back to camp around maybe 6 or 6.30 in that p.m. And then we take all of our samples, put them in the freezer, make sure everything's correct, um, image all of our data sheets in case the paper gets lost, and yeah. then we make sure and then we date and label everything for the following day so that's ready to go. Dr. Hatch has been studying these clam gardens for years, and he's one of the many who are part of a movement to bring back the active management of clam gardens. These ancient clam gardens can help nourish the local indigenous people, both physically and culturally. A lot of these clam gardens haven't been managed in a long time. Is there a movement to kind of go back to those, those areas? Have people been talking about that? So what happened in some of these instances, um, that former open access beaches, beaches where people could go dig clams, became part of federal parks. Mm, okay. And the park system was trying to keep nature natural by keeping people out of it. And the people at the time, the indigenous groups at the time said, well, if we don't dig these beaches, they're going to die. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what happened, that those beaches weren't dug. The sediments came, became compacted and clam populations went way down. Now that that's being reactivated, those beaches are being dug again and being remanaged, the hope is that those clam populations are going to come back. It takes time for that to happen, right? It doesn't happen overnight. These are, like we talked about, animals that can live to be 20 plus years old. So to be able to measure an impact on that takes a while. But everybody involved in that sort of work is really optimistic that by being back out on the landscape, by digging clams, by turning over the sediment, by managing beaches, following indigenous protocols, that's gonna improve the health of these beaches. Right. So there's an environmental benefit, as well as, those, uh, as, well as a, a benefit for those communities by um, getting back out, practicing traditional practices, getting youth involved, um, reconnection to these spaces that they've been excluded from due to federal policy. So we have these different rock walls and uh, the indigenous people here were dealing with um, sea level change but at a much slower rate than we're dealing with now. So how can we use this technology currently? So I think clam gardens are a great technology that um, have been in continuous use for thousands of years. And today we're seeing clam gardens used in a few areas um, to stabilize the shoreline and, and you, we start to see the rock wall being rebuilt um, over time. You know, these rocks are kind of spread out now. Over time, um, the waves kind of knock them down and spread them out. So what folks are doing now is starting to put the rocks back in the wall, which also raises it. So clam gardens can be used as one tool to help stabilize shorelines in a rising sea. Now it's not the cure for everywhere, um, yeah. and it's not appropriate everywhere, but where it is, I think it's a good way to mitigate some of these changes that we're seeing and use this as a form of adaptation. Um, however, there's lots of other issues that are going on with global climate change. Uh, but clam gardens are still this really good technology that is adaptable to changing seas. As we lose the ability to dig clams due to either sea level change, um, other anthropogenic issues like toxins or biotoxins, we also lose that connection between particularly elders and youth who go out in the land together and dig clams. We lose that knowledge transfer from one generation to the next. And we also, it changes our view of the environment, right? Like if things that, that come out of the sea 
are viewed as being toxic and how does that work as an indigenous person where going out and harvesting from the sea is part of who you are. Right. People put amazing amounts of effort and knowledge and technology into creating this landscape and seascape, you know, almost 4,000 years ago. Um, and so this idea that people shouldn't be out on the beaches, they shouldn't be digging clams, they shouldn't be doing traditional management actually makes a very unnatural system, right? Uh, having folks out in the landscape, you know, practicing uh, sustainable harvest practices, practicing culture, um, I think it builds a more resilient environment and it helps uh, keep people connected to the land. Yeah. We'd like to thank Dr. Marco Hatch and WW undergraduate student Sienna Reed for showing us a day in the life of ecology research on the banks of Quadra Island. If you'd like to know more about Dr. Hatch's research lab, you can visit wp.ww.edu backslash hatchlab. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded on Quadra Island in British Columbia, Canada. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Faith Haney, and myself, Regina Barber-DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley and Julia Thorpe. Script support by Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. If there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.